Welcome back to those of you who uh, came last weekend on Easter and you decided to come back and check things out some more at our church. That's awesome. I can pretty much guarantee you there's more for you to learn about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, and who he is and what he's all about and what he's done and what he's up to in the world these days. So I am so glad that you're here. If you have a Bible or a Bible app on your device, go to Acts chapter 3. That's where we'll be today. There's also a study guide in your worship folder that you might want to pull out as well. And speaking of the Bible, we are a church that has a strong belief in the power and authority of the Bible. We believe it's the Word of God. And uh, we believe that God speaks to people primarily through His Word. That's why we preach and teach from the Bible every week around here, from the wee little ones all the way up to senior saints. And uh, we love the Word of God. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sometimes we just walk together through one of the books that are in the Bible, and that's what we, we've been doing in recent days for a couple of months. We've been in a series in the New Testament book of Acts. We took a short break for our uh, Holy Week and Easter celebration. But today we are returning to this story, this fascinating account of the birth of the very first Christian church, and we've titled the series Spirit-Filled, Spirit-Filled, because that's a term that was used to describe those early first century believers in that very first church, and we hope that it's going to come to describe us as well, amen? Spirit-Filled. Now, you might recall back a few weeks as we uh, began in the book of Acts how this whole thing got started. You remember that? The Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, and there were these amazing supernatural manifestations that occurred, and that drew a crowd of uh, curious folks. And then Peter, the Apostle Peter, stood up and he preached the very first Christian sermon on that day. And that sermon was so powerful and so convicting that 3,000 people, 3,000, repented of their sins and put their trust in Jesus Christ, the one who just weeks before they had called for his crucifixion, they now believed he was alive, they put their faith in him, and they became brand new believers in Christ. They were then baptized in a mass baptism, which must have been amazing, and then they started to share their lives together as a brand new church family. Near the end of Acts 2, the writer of Acts, Luke, gave us a, a picture, a, a glimpse into what that life was like. He wrote this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and now note this, many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And so now, today as we come to Acts chapter 3, Luke is going to report on one particular instance of that happening, of God working through his apostles to do a miraculous sign. And this incident that we're looking at today is really going to set the stage for everything that follows. It's a very important miracle in the history of Christianity. So let me read. Luke's account of this from Acts chapter 3. Listen as I read. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. 
Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. And when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and he began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while the beggar held on to Peter and John, just clinging to them, all the people were astonished. And they came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. Well, isn't this just wonderful? I mean, what a wonderful story. And to me, it seems appropriate that this beautiful healing took place right at the gate called Beautiful, right there by the Jewish temple. What we have here is a 40-something-year-old man, we're told that in the next chapter, who had a congenital birth defect that had crippled him all of his life, that had reduced him to being a beggar, to sitting there every day with his hands out just to acquire enough money to live on. And now his entire life gets completely changed in a moment because two apostles of Jesus come by and lock eyes with him and heal him in Jesus' name. Thank God for this story. I know that man was thanking God for sure. Now, interestingly, all of this follows a pattern. And it's a pattern that we see a lot in the book of Acts. It was also common during the life and ministry of Jesus. And the pattern goes like this. First, a miraculous sign is performed, and that attracts a crowd of onlookers, curious folks who show up to find out what's going on. And then a sermon is preached, and then the listeners respond to that sermon, and then the leaders, the local leaders, react to all that's going on. This pattern happens so often, it's hard not to think that it was a part of God's plan. First, there's a sign, and then there's a sermon. First, there's a miracle, followed by a message. First, there's a wonder performed, and then the word is proclaimed. Again and again, we're going to see this, so much so that it becomes uh, an identifiable pattern. And I think that if we just stop and think about this and ponder it a little bit, it's going to shed some light on why God chose to do miracles in the first place. And so let's take a moment and and ask that question. What was the purpose of apostolic miracles, the miracles that the apostles were given power to perform? What What was their purpose? And I want to give you several thoughts about this. First, I believe that one of God's purposes was to confirm and validate Jesus' apostles' as God's messengers, to validate them, to authenticate them, because realize 
back then a big question was this, who speaks for God? Who, who is speaking for God? There were a lot of teachings floating around. There were many, many rabbis and instructors and teachers claiming to have a message from God, but, but who should be believed? There was no New Testament yet, so how could someone discern whose teachings were really authorized by the Lord? Well, Scripture tells us that God solved that by choosing to give certain unique power to his true messengers, who were the apostles of Jesus and their very close associates, their close friends, just to, to mark them, to identify them. Does this make sense? Miracles were God's signature, as it were, God's authentication of his true spokesman. That's what Scripture teaches us in Hebrews 2, for example. Let me just read this. It says this, How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, that's Jesus, was confirmed to us by those who heard him, that's the apostles. Verse 4, God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. You see this? God's attesting, testifying, validating, confirming, authenticating his true messengers through giving them the ability to perform these miracles. We see the same thing in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. You see, the first century era was a very unique season in the life of the Christian church. It was a foundational era in which people who had actually known Jesus Christ personally, people who had lived with Him, walked with Him, ate meals with Him, these folks were alive. And during that era, God chose to, to gift a select few of those Jesus followers with these unique abilities to show that they were the ones authorized to speak for God. Their miracles would serve as signs. That's the word often used, signs. And we know what signs do, right? They point to something. The attention is not so much on the sign as it is on what the sign points to. And these miraculous signs pointed to Jesus as the one with the power, and they pointed to his apostles as the ones who were authorized to speak in his name. Does this make sense? Okay, just want to make sure. This was a primary reason God enabled his apostles to do miracles. But second, without a doubt, miracles were done in order to demonstrate the power of the risen Christ, right? A little later in this story, when a, a crowd gathers around Peter and John in this a uh, man who had been healed, and they're, they're staring at Peter and John as if they were some sort of gods. And, and Peter says, look, the power to heal this man didn't come from us. It came from Jesus, the risen Jesus. It's his name that healed this man. It's Jesus' name that has power. He, he said, we're just his agents. We're just his ambassadors here. Understand that the, the power to heal withered bones comes from Jesus. And so, through his apostles, Jesus was showing that he is Lord over all of his creation, right? Even the human body. And then, of course, miraculous healings were performed to bless the recipients <laughs> and give them yet another reason to praise God. I mean, that's where our mind goes first, right? When we hear about a miraculous healing, we think about how blessed those people were. To the people, 
who have their lives totally changed by God's powerful grace to them. Blind eyes see for the first time. Crippled people stand up and walk and run. People tormented by demons find themselves clothed, seated, and in their right mind. Deathly ill people are amazed to have their life given back to them. People with leprosy are shocked to find their skin as smooth as a baby's behind, as my dad used to say. These are amazing feats that bless these people immeasurably, and they all praise God, don't they, for His goodness to them. And that tells us something else about miracles, that they portray the compassionate heart of our God. The God who the Bible tells us is close to the brokenhearted, who identifies with the weak and the infirmed and the outcast. These stories of miraculous healings give us a peek into what moves the heart of God, what touches His heart. It's a beautiful thing. They also preview life in the future kingdom of God. Life in the future kingdom of God. You see, Jesus' death on the cross accomplished many things, maybe more than you realized. Jesus hanging there on the cross, shedding his blood, purchased a lot of things for us. We know that it satisfied God's justice on our behalf, right? It enabled him, God, to show mercy to lost sinners like us. Jesus' death on the cross paid for our sins. That's most wonderful, right? Secured our forgiveness, our eternal salvation. But I want you to understand that it also did something else. It purchased the guarantee of our ultimate healing and wholeness. By His stripes, what does it say? We are healed. I'm telling you, one day all sickness will be eradicated All disease will come to an end. No more cancer. So sick of that. So sick of cancer. No more heart disease. No more diabetes. No more deformities. No more handicaps. Jesus' wounds, his blood, his suffering during his crucifixion had the effect of guaranteeing eternal life and health and wholeness for all of God's people in the future kingdom of God and every miraculous healing that he grants in this age is a glimpse of that, a foreshadowing of that, a preview, a foretaste of life in the full and final manifestation of the kingdom of God. And I think that should give all of us great hope and encouragement to know that Jesus' death accomplished so much for us. But you know what else? Without a doubt, one of God's chief purposes in performing miracles through his apostles was to attract a crowd, to set the stage for gospel proclamation. You see, in the scriptures, the point of miracles was not really miracles. Miracles were not the end game. As I said, they were a sign that pointed to something else. Healings like the one we see here in Acts 3 were meant to do many things, but especially they were intended to stir up curiosity and prepare people to hear the message of the good news. 
in the Gospels when Jesus sensed that people were becoming too fixated on his miracles, when he sensed they were becoming too enamored, too obsessed with his miracles, he always sought to to redirect their attention to his words, to his teachings. Remember the pattern I talked about? A miracle, then a message, a sign, then a sermon. You see, a standalone miracle all by itself doesn't prove much. We know that Satan has the ability to counterfeit at least some of God's miracles. But a miraculous sign combined with the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus is a potent combination for changing people's lives. And that's what Jesus is really after. You see, a sick body being healed is wonderful, but a sick soul being healed is even more wonderful. Whenever the apostles did perform an astounding feat like this one here, it it usually set the stage for them to share the message of Jesus with the crowd that would gather to find out what was going on. That's what we'll see a lot in the book of Acts. So let's look more closely at this story. In Acts 3, and then I'm going to draw out some applications for us today. The first apostolic miracle. First, the setting. And to me, as I read through this, the setting felt kind of orchestrated to me. Like it was set up, it was meant to happen. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Peter and John, we know who these guys are, right? Long-time friends, probably grew up together. They became fishing buddies. We all know that really brings people close together, right? Then Jesus came along, and they were both drawn into Jesus' little band of, of followers, his disciples, and they were actually part of that inner circle, remember? Peter, James, and John, they were privy to certain events and special moments in the life of Jesus that the others were not. So these guys were close, and now they'd become partners in ministry. They were helping to lead this brand new church that exploded right out of the gate and had at least 3,120 people in it, (laughs) and they were in charge. They were teammates guiding this new church, and as the story unfolds, they're going to grow even closer together through sharing in persecution and um, experiencing that together. So here they are. They're going up to the Jewish temple there in Jerusalem. It says at three in the afternoon. Now that was one of several designated prayer times every day that Jewish people observed as part of their religion of Judaism. Now this is kind of interesting when you think about it because things were changing, right? These fellows, Peter and John, they're now Christians, but they're still Jews And Jewish customs still governed most of their lives. They hadn't pulled away from that yet. Remember, there were no church buildings to meet in yet in those days. So these new Christians decided to meet together in a very large space there in the temple courtyard called Solomon's Colonnade. I mean, they were used to going there anyway uh, at these prescribed prayer times every day. So this just became natural for them to continue on but now with a new focus, right? A Jesus focus. So these two fellows head into that area. They make their way through one particular gate of entry, which apparently was very beautiful, since that's what it was called. 
And there sitting by the entrance is a crippled man, a lame man, it says. I think he was strategically located there. His friends brought him there every day, and he knew that at these certain appointed times every day, hundreds, probably thousands of people were streaming through this gate. So there he was with his hands out or maybe a a hat there or something and asking, uh, the King James says, alms of people, gifts, could you please drop a few coins into my hat so I can buy some food? That was likely his routine every day. I think it's possible Peter and John had seen him there many times before. But as happens to a lot of us, perhaps they had just started to look past him, to ignore him, but not this day. But not this day. For some reason, today would be different. Verse 3, when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. And Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And Peter said, look at us. (laughs) He wanted to lock eyes with this fellow. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Like, this is going to be good, awesome. And then Peter said, silver or gold, I do not have. I wonder if he just kind of got deflated in that moment. Ah, bummer. But what I have, I give you. Something about this time, this moment, this man, the sound of this man's voice on this day stopped these two apostles in their tracks. You know what I believe? I believe it was the Holy Spirit. These were now Spirit-filled men, right? The Spirit had come and had baptized them, and and they were filled with the Spirit. And they, they were now attuned to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. They instinctively knew that God was about to do something. By the way, are you attuned to that voice? Are you attuned to that voice? Do you sense the promptings of the Holy Spirit who dwells within you? I would say for me, about four or five times a day, not a day, about four or five times a week, I'm sorry. That's just for me. Maybe it's different for you. For me, about four or five times every week, I have a strong impression, a strong sense about something. Reach out to that person. They need a word of encouragement. Send an email to this person. This person needs some appreciation for all that they're doing. Pray for this person. Offer this to this person. About four or five times a week, it's very strong, it's unmistakable, it's that voice in my spirit. I believe the Holy Spirit saying, I'm working here. I'm working. Act on this. Do this. Don't ignore this. This is from me. This is from your Lord. Do you sense that? Maybe some of you sense it more often than I do. Praise God for that. But when I, when I act on that, I, I, I see something good come of it. To me, these are, these are um, entrustments from the Lord that he wants me to be a good steward of. These promptings from his Holy Spirit. Even if I don't see anything happen right in that moment, I trust that he's going to use it as he sees fit. 
Well, on this day, at this moment, Peter and John must have sensed something because they didn't do what they typically did. They stop, they pause, they lock eyes with this man. It says in the King James, they fixed their gaze on him, gave him their undivided attention. He asked them for some change, but like many of us, they weren't carrying any cash on them that day. They didn't have what he thought he needed, but they did have what they knew he needed. And they were more than willing to give that, and so Peter speaks up in the name. Can you imagine this moment? Hey, please help a a poor beggar here with some money. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. (laughs) Wow. And you know what? It happened. Taking him by the right hand, it says, he helped him up and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Without the benefit of any physical therapy, this guy begins to take steps, probably giggling like a little kid at Christmas time, don't you think? I mean, think about this. Just imagine if you were this guy, never having known what it was like to walk. He had never walked. He never climbed a tree as a kid. He never skipped rope. He never run in his life. Things that we take for granted, right? We don't give a second thought to. And then one day God's apostles show up and they heal this man. And for the first time in his life, he stands up and he puts one foot in front of the other. Do you think he was a little giddy? this is awesome walking you take it for granted you take it for granted don't you I wonder how many blessings from God we take for granted every day we just don't even think about when really we should be saying praise you God you have clothes in your closet you have a roof over your head you got a car in your driveway two cars three, got socks and shoes, your heart's beating. I mean, you start to think about it. I wonder what that would have been like for that guy. This was a certified, bona fide miracle. And I want to point out a few things about it. First, it was unexpected. This guy didn't know this was going to happen that day. This was a sovereignly orchestrated act of God, right? There's no evidence that this guy thought this was going to happen. He didn't really have any part in it other than to take Peter's hand when he reached out. The apostles simply looked at him, invoked the name of Jesus, and the guy was healed. Second, it pointed to Jesus. I mean, Peter made very sure that this guy knew where the power came from. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, he said. He wanted to be very clear about who did it, about whose glory it was for. That's, again, why these kinds of miracles are called signs. They point to Jesus. Third, it was instantaneous. This was not a progressive healing over time. This was, boom, healed. Instantly. Fourth, it was complete. Bones were straightened. Cartilage was created. Muscles were strengthened. Neurological paths in the brain were altered. Right? He didn't have to learn how to walk. Probably should have, but he didn't have to. 
This was not, hey, we got some of it today, come back next month and we'll try to get more of it. No, this was complete healing instantaneously in a moment and it was purposeful. It was purposeful. This healing would end up setting the stage for a powerful sermon being delivered to a very curious crowd of people, very similar to what we already saw already back in Acts chapter 2, right? A sign, crowd gathers, a sermon. What was the aftermath of this? It's wonderful. Then verse 8, then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. I can see it in my mind, can't you? When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Hey, isn't that fellow that we always used to see right there? How is he jumping <laughs> like a pogo stick? How is this happening? So what happened? Well, the man was joyful, God was praised, And the people were astonished, it says, amazed. Like, oh my goodness. How is this happening? And next week we're going to see how Peter, once again, attuned to the Spirit, right? Realizes what's going on and he seizes the moment and he answers the question that was on everybody's mind. How did this happen And he delivers an amazing sermon once again. So we're going to see that pattern, that a sign prompts a sermon. A miracle paves the way for a message. And so we'll look at that next week. Don't miss it because the message is really the whole point of the miracle. And we'll enjoy walking through that together. Well, as I walk through this story this week, it occurred to me that there are several things in here I believe for us. And I just want to briefly mention these before we have a time of testimonies together. What's here for us? Well, I think there's several challenges here. Let's let this story prompt us to be sensitive to when the Holy Spirit prompts us to meet needs that are right in front of us. I know I miss opportunities. Do you? You ever catch yourself afterwards like, doggone it. That happened, and my mind was elsewhere, and I missed it. Lord, give me another opportunity. Don't let me blow it again. I'm sorry I ignored that voice, that prompting of your spirit. Let's be more sensitive to that, that God might be opening up doors to loving our neighbors, maybe in ways that would surprise us. And then let's get more focused on people we pass by every day. And be willing to pause and stop and give them our undivided attention. You know who I'm talking about, right? The checkout clerk at the grocery store. The guy at the gas station. How about the people you work with every day in the next cubicle over or, you know, in your class that you're at at school? I mean, we just get so used to the routine that we begin to look past people. And I think that God would have us at times pause And just give somebody our undivided attention like we saw here. Hey, what's going on with you these days? What's going on? Third, let's be willing to share with others what God has so graciously given us. Look, maybe you have silver or gold in your pocket. It's okay to distribute that, right? 
It's okay to bless someone if the Spirit's leading you to a needy person with something physical and material like that. But beyond that, let's look for opportunities to give them Jesus. The title of this sermon is, Give Them What We Got. (laughs) Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give you. Oh, what opportunities the Lord opens up for us to speak a word about Jesus when a word for Jesus desperately needs to be spoken. And then fourth, let's be ready to give praise to God for what he has done. Amen? Let's be ready to give praise to God, to give credit where credit is due, to speak words that glorify Jesus Christ in the presence of others. And honor our Lord in that way. And I want to just ask you, what are you praising God for today? What has God done for you that you want to glorify Him for? What is God doing in you that you want to give praise to Him for? What is God doing through you to bless other people that would be a great testimony for others to hear about?